This is the Mark Stucheski Podcast. Ted Harrington is the number one best-selling author of Hackable, How to Do Application Security, and he's the executive partner of security consultancy ISE, which stands for Independent Security Evaluators. Ted, welcome to the show. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Well, he's here sporting a, uh, well, we're both very casual. B, this is not a video podcast. It's audio only, but I'm in the sleeveless shirt. He's in a t-shirt because we are two guys that don't care the way we look. We just want to provide value. And we're going to talk about cybersecurity on, on the show today. And I think that's really important because everyone's on their phones. Everyone's on the internet. I don't know anyone personally that's off the grid. Do you? Uh, not, not that I can think of. I don't even know if that's possible to be honest, to be fully <laughs> off the grid. I'm sure there are some people, but obviously they're not listening to this podcast. So we, we won't <laughs> right. be talking to them. So it's a pretty big deal. Uh, you know, cybersecurity in the year 2021, especially July. And I have had to train my father and my aunt. My aunt's 84 years old. She just recently got a surface tablet. My dad's got the MacBook and the iPhone and they started getting these phone calls saying, Hey, this is Apple calling. Uh, your computer has been infected. And I got my dad trained enough to call me when he gets these phone calls. And I always tell dad, Apple has no clue. If your computer has been infected, don't call them. Don't give them fifty nine ninety nine to unlock your computer because then you'll lose everything you have. So I want to start right there. I want to start with, it's kind of like a tangent of cybersecurity, but these calls that are coming into people, and it's not just the elderly that are falling for this. It's everyone. They're going, oh my gosh, the IRS calling me, Apple's calling me, Microsoft's calling me, and they're really not. So let's talk about that for a few minutes. Sure. So the the principle that you're talking about right now is what's called social engineering. And social engineering is a attack technique, or actually really it's a whole genre, I think, of security that is really about tricking people into doing things they shouldn't do. And sometimes it's more benign than others. But the examples that you laid out are are certainly, I think, really good ones, even if someone hasn't personally experienced that type of phone call, they're familiar with the idea of someone trying to like sneak them with something that sounds really believable. And one of the things that I think is interesting and maybe unpleasant and unfortunate about the reality of the world we live in today, but this also is goes back to like the dawn of humanity, is that there's always going to be people out there trying to trick us, trying to take the things that we have that we want. So even though as humans where we want to be wired to trust other humans. I mean, that's like innate in us, in our like tribal culture. We, we need to trust other people. We have to realize that we should default from a place of, of not trusting until someone is able to establish that they are worthy of that trust. So when people receive those phone calls, when you get the email with the link or the attachment, just immediately default to thinking that this is probably a bad thing until I can verify that it's actually a good thing. I love that. I remember last year, I think it was the summer of 2020, I finally got the phone call from the computerized voice that said that my warrant is a warrant out for my arrest. I felt so forgotten, Ted, because all my friends had gotten it. And I'm like, how come I haven't gotten this call? 
And I finally got it, and I was laughing so hard. I mean, it was this robotic from the 1970s computer voice saying there's a warrant out for your arrest. And I felt so I felt so accepted in society when I got that call. <laughs> That's one way to look at it. Hey, I like I like that positive spin. <laughs> so let's talk about how people can protect themselves. I mean, I, I would like to think that my listener is smart enough not to use password one, two, three to not use the same password over and over again. So let's not start that low. Let's, let's assume that people know that. I mean, if you don't know that, if your password is eight zeros, I, I don't want to go there right now because to me, that's common sense. That's not just cybersecurity. That's common sense. So let's talk about some really simple, practical ideas that anyone can protect themselves on the internet in 2021. Well, before we even answer that question, maybe what we should think about is how do attackers think? Uh, this is one of my my big, I guess, soapboxes that uh, I'm always standing on, which is that you know to really to defend against attackers, we really need to think like them. And that's actually, admittedly, you know, I'll I'll be the first to admit it that that's a very difficult thing to do. It's not something that we're necessarily wired to do as human beings, right? Where we're wired to like figure out what the rules are. And then follow the rules. That's what most people do. But that's not what attackers do. Attackers try to abuse the systems. They try to understand the way things work and then try to make it do something different. And so when we think about even, I, I agree with you, I don't think it's it's worth going into the details of like why to use a certain type of password. But I think that a lot of people, even within that particular conversation, they don't necessarily understand why that matters. They think like, oh, I don't know, some annoying IT nerd is telling me I got to do things a certain way, like, all right, whatever. But what we have to do is we have to realize, like, why, do, why does that matter? And it matters because what attackers do is once one service has been compromised, so let's say there's some, I don't know, pick an app, there's like some running app that gets hacked. And the attackers now have the database of usernames and passwords of whatever that app was that, get, that got compromised. Uh, What's the very first thing that they do? They now go try those same credential pairs on all the other services that might be more valuable. They're going to go try it at uh, different banks. They're going to try it where people take out mortgages for their homes. They're going to try it where uh, credit card companies, things like that, because they know that most people are inherently lazy. And I don't, uh, we can talk about laziness in a minute because I actually don't mean that as a bad thing. That's actually, that's a human instinct about survival is we're wired to simplify and laziness is a method to do that but they know that most people will use the same password across all these different services and so that's why it matters to not just use strong passwords but to use passwords that are different across different services because when one system falls all the other systems are going to be attacked next and if you're using the same passwords at each it's like if you lost your um maybe this isn't a great metaphor but if you lost your house key and that same key opened every other thing in your life and attackers know that that's how those keys work that of course they're going to go stick it into every other door lock that you have and so to now bring it back to your question what are some simple things that people can be doing um so this is of course speaking to your typical end users who are maybe not security professionals or uh, it professionals use a password manager Password managers enable you to have really complex passwords, really long passwords. You don't have to remember them. And most importantly, they can be different across all those different services. So it effectively thwarts 
that issue that I just mentioned. So that's a super easy thing to do. Everyone should do it, whether you're just, you know, someone's, you know, grandmother or grandfather, all the way to you are in charge of security for your organization. I love that. And I have tried almost everyone that's out there and they have improved the Apple Keychain Manager so much and it's synchronized against all my devices. So I just use Apple's built-in Keychain Manager, which now they require to have two-factor authentication, which I absolutely love it, which more companies would do. For the benefit of the listener who doesn't know what 2FA is, can you explain it what it is for us? Yeah, so multi-factor authentication is, uh, first of all, one of the most important and revolutionary advances in security in a long time. It's so it's very, very effective. But essentially what it is, is uh, it's what it sounds like. It's using multiple methods to verify uh, your um, that you can do what you're trying to do, log into whatever. And so this is where when you you go enter your password somewhere and then you have to enter the text that you get from a service. And so basically what it means is you know something and you have something. So you know your password, it's verifying, that's one method of uh, authentication. And then you have something, which is your phone. And that phone is where you receive the text message or use an authenticator app. And so the reason that multi-factor authentication is so powerful and is so effective is that what it effectively does is it significantly increases what's called the attack requirements. It meaning it makes it way, 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 way harder for an attacker to be successful. So think about what that means, right? If they, um, if they can get your password, they could attack you know, any system that's not protected by MFA and they have your password. doesn't even matter where they are. They can attack your system. If MFA is enabled, they also have to physically have your phone. So what's the likelihood, even if you lost, let's, okay, let's, t- let's talk about that in reverse because getting the phone might even be the harder thing. Let's say you lose your, you leave your phone at Starbucks. What's the likelihood that the person who finds your phone can also now find a password of yours for one of your systems? Good point. And that's why it's so effective because for the attacker to have both of those things, it's not impossible, certainly, but the likelihood that something like that in combination is going to happen, it becomes so low that it's really, really very, very effective. So most people are really annoyed by multi-factor because it's like, oh, I got to do one more thing or whatever. But it actually is super, super, super effective. Hey, you listening to the Mark Stuchowski podcast. Thank you so much for doing so. I really appreciate it. But are you a Mark Stuchowski insider yet? This is my free email newsletter, and you can sign up right now by going to MrProductivity.com. M-I-S-T-E-R, MrProductivity.com. And the thing I like about, I'm, I'm an all Apple guy unapologetically. And if I did lose my phone and someone tried to log in, well, you got to either have face ID or touch ID to unlock, to get the code. So it won't display the code unlocked. You have to unlock the phone, which is another form of protection. I really like the way Apple does the, the two factor because now they, you can show it on your watch. It can be on your phone. It can be on your Mac, but you got to have. The, like you said, the password and the other uh, device, which is really important. It's one of the big reasons I'm also a big fan of Apple Pay. I believe Apple Pay is the most secure way to pay. And if you're not familiar with Apple Pay, is it scrambles your credit card, number one. And number two, at the point of sale, it gives a one-time token. So the only way someone could actually steal your credit card information and token is if they were right next to you at the cash register. And in the split second, 
that Apple sends that token to the cash register, you are fast enough to get that code and process your order on Amazon or whatever the case may be, which I, I've never heard of anyone, um, anybody crashing or, or hacking into Apple pay. I think it's very secure. I don't like to use other people's methods of service where you got to show, you know, scan the barcode or put it on their phone. I don't think that's a secure. So I don't know if you can speak on that or not, but I'm a big fan of Apple pay. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know if I can necessarily, I haven't done an assessment of Apple pay itself, but the, the, the principles that Apple pay is built upon are exactly the right principles in that. I mean, you, I'm just going to enumerate again what you said, you know, the the idea that it's essentially obfuscating the actual credit card information by having this sort of like intermediary layer. You're right. It significantly increases the attack requirements because someone does physically have to be there. In theory, there's probably other attack methods that because, um, like I said, we haven't done any sort of research on this, but I'm sure others have. So I wouldn't say that it's bulletproof. I mean, nothing is bulletproof, but it is a significant improvement over just presenting a credit card. And there's a lot about Apple's ecosystem that they clearly think about how to integrate security. And I think the big takeaway here isn't, I'm an, I'm an Apple fanboy too myself, but the point isn't that like Apple's so great. Apple, Apple is great. I think Apple's great. But the point isn't that Apple's great. The point is that what Apple has done is they have intentionally tried to solve one of the most systemic problems with security, which is that there's this, uh, this principle of secure design that's called psychological acceptability. That's a big word. It doesn't matter what the big word means, but the idea of it means that users will reject security if it becomes too difficult. Mm. And so the opposite is also true. The easier that you make security, the more likely users will go in line with it. And you talked before about face ID. You talked about, uh, maybe you didn't mention the thumbprint, but when the thumbprint, uh, the biometric scanner using your thumb to open your phone. When that first came out, that was the perfect example of the way that all of us in the security community think about security is how can we integrate security in a way that's seamless? Because that you already push the button to open the phone. And if in the process, it also is your way of unlocking the phone, the result, I I forget what the exact statistic is, but it was something like, you know, if only 30% of people used used uh, passcodes on their phones before, it became like, 90% because it was just, it was too easy. And I think that's the principle we should take away from this. Similar with Apple pay is that what they're trying to do is integrate the process of keeping things secure in what we're already doing. Mm. That's the key. One thing I like about face ID is they've got a setting in there and I don't know how they do this. It's amazing that if you're not looking at the face ID camera, it won't unlock. So there's something called active watching and apparently they've tested it. I've, I've never tested this, but if someone's dead or unconscious, it won't unlock the phone. I don't know if that's true or how they did it, but I know Apple engineers are really smart people and I just, I, I want to secure my iPhone. And one of the things I do is I don't use the pin code, six digit pin. You can actually go into settings and make it alphanumeric. So it's more of a pain but I want to make sure if my iPhone is stolen or I lose it, which I don't think is going to happen because it's actually part of my body now. It's actually physically attached, um, that people are going to have a tough time getting into my phone. I'll be sitting at church and I'll see people unlocking their phones. One, two, three, four. I'm like, really? Really? <laughs> I mean, that's the first thing. If I stole someone's phone, I'm not going to steal people's phones. It's not what I do. Um, 
yeah, I'm going to try one, two, three, four. I'm going to try one, one, one. I'm going to try zero, zero, zero. I mean, those are the low hanging fruit. I'm like, all you have to do is go in the settings and change it to alphanumeric. Is it a little bit more of a hassle when you have to unlock your phone? Yeah, it is, but it's going to secure you a little bit more. And I don't think the barrier is that high that I would encourage people not to do it. What say you? Well, I, I definitely agree with the idea that little steps can make significant uh, improvements. Um, and what's really interesting about the conversation that we're having is that it, I would answer these questions differently depending on who we're, who we're speaking to, right? So if we're talking to, yeah, the, a- the average person that you might see at church who's not necessarily a technologist, yes, agreed. But I'd be saying, I'd be speaking about this differently to the kinds of people that are like my clients, the people who are responsible for building software, building the apps that you actually interact with on the phones, because those people obviously are thinking about these challenges in, in very different ways, thinking about it more in an engineering, in an engineering sense. But bottom line to answer your question, yeah, I think the the little things that we can do that make significant uh, in improvements in our ability to keep systems secure for our ways of just being aware. Yeah, I mean, those those little things go a long way. Let me ask your thoughts on this because you're a cybersecurity expert and I always wanted to know this. When you have an account, an app or something that uses multi-factor uh, authentication, I always felt a little... What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, not at ease when they send me the code via text message with Apple, it sends it to your phone securely. Or if you use like um, a code generator app, I feel those are more secure. What are your thoughts? Do you think it's okay if someone like Amazon, for example, they will send you the the one-time code via text message. Do you think that because it's coming through an unencrypted text message, it's not as safe? Yeah, there's tons of security research that shows that uh, SMS as the channel is not a good way to do multi-factor at all. Um, unfortunately, though, I think this is one of those classic scenarios where it's maybe it's not the better approach from a security standpoint. I mean, not maybe. It is definitely not the better approach from a security standpoint, but it's better than nothing. Mm-hmm. And the best approach, for sure, of using multi-factor is to use a uh, an authenticator app like google has a really simple authenticator app i i prefer it to uh, text message wherever i can but not everyone integrates with the system like that and so my thinking is let's just let's make sure that there's mfa and then uh, hopefully we can make sure that google authenticator is there but for for the i guess sake of adoption uh, i i wouldn't I wouldn't be the one banging on the door saying like, because SMS is bad, let's turn off multi-factor. Right. I agree with that. So let's talk about how a lot of entrepreneurs like myself, we work from home and you know, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on TikTok, we're on LinkedIn, we're on podcasting apps, we're on Zencaster, we're on Zoom, and we're going from app to app to app to app. And, and sometimes we like lower our security we lower our, maybe our expectations that something's going to happen because we're just trying to serve the people, whether it's a client or posting something on social media. And because I want to go back to the word you said earlier, laziness. And sometimes when you lower those barriers, it's real easy to get things done. To In my case, as Mr. Productivity, it's a lot easier to be more productive when you don't have to do the 2FA or, or the password and stuff like that. But it's all fine and good if everything's going the way you expect it, but what if something happens? So let's talk about the entrepreneur that's working from home and the situation I just gave you. Yeah. So let's explore this idea of laziness a little bit. Cause I, I think that 
it's one of these things that is used really pejoratively, really used to sort of insult average people, people like us, like people who are listening, right? Like, oh, you're lazy. And laziness inherently is probably a bad thing in most contexts. But um, I, I run a podcast myself, and one of my guests I had on is this really, really intelligent person, PhD in some sort of like behavioral something or other economics or whatever. I don't know what it was, but definitely knows about the way humans work. And was we were talking about this idea of laziness and how <clears throat> laziness, even though today it's sort of framed as a bad thing, it's, its biological purpose is to say, I only have so much energy. You know, imagine being a caveman. I only have so much energy and I, the energy really needs to be used for survival. And so what I'm actively trying to do is figure out what I don't need to worry about. And the things I don't need to worry about, I'm going to now ignore and I'm trying to pay attention to patterns. And when there's uh, anomalies in the patterns, that's danger. And so when it comes to security, this actually manifests in, in somewhat of a, a bad way, unfortunately, which is because we can't really see even when an attack is happening, we can't really necessarily see it. The average person can't see it. So we don't see the anomaly to the pattern. And so it, it sort of becomes this reinforcing behavior where it's like, all right, well, I didn't get hacked and I did that bad thing. And so like, maybe I'll do that weak password again and I'll do it again and again and again. So my advice to the entrepreneurs working from home, whether you're a single solo entrepreneur or you're an entrepreneur who has, you know, employs hundreds of people, it's to, you should do a few things. So there's this exercise in security that we call, it's called threat modeling. And don't worry about like that term necessarily what it means, but the, the principles of it are what matters. Because what threat modeling is, is you, you effectively identify three things. You answer three questions. And these are the three questions I would recommend that everyone listening to the show go ask yourselves. First question is, what do you want to protect? So depending on what your business is, you might have data that is important to you. You might have uh, money. You might have a reputation for your brand, a reputation for you as a, as a professional. Uh, you might have information about your customers that's very proprietary. So what do you want to protect? Those are called assets. When you think about that and the exercise, and it's very simple to do, you just literally write down what are all of the things you want to protect? And it sort of breaks into two things. There's tangible things, like I mentioned, like data or money, and there's intangible things like reputation or trust. So write down all the things you want to protect. So that's the first question. What do you want to protect? Those are your assets. Second question is, who do you want to defend against? Now, this is a lot more difficult of a question to answer for the average person. So I, I, I accept that. Um, I actually talk about how to do this in my book. So if, if you wanted actual step-by-step -step guidance, just pick up Hackable and it'll, it'll tell you exactly how to do it. But the, this second question, who do you want to defend against? You basically want to be thinking about things like, okay, you just identified what you want to protect. Does someone like a nation state want something like that? Does organized crime want that? Does someone who's more of a, out for notoriety, do they want that? Does, do you have... In, an insider that we should be worried about. Is there someone who's disgruntled who was overlooked for a promotion or something like that? And you might need the help of a security professional to help you think about these if, if you don't know all the different attacker types. But like I said, that's there's only so many and I, I wrote about them all in the book. So it's, it, you, you should be able to figure it out yourself with a little bit of guidance. The third question is, where will I be attacked? And so now what you want to do is you want to think about where are all of the places that someone might access information. So let's say, for example, you're building 
a software, uh, a software system where you log in would be one of those places. Um, even if you're not building software, other places you might be attacked are your people. We, we started this conversation talking about social engineering. That is an attack service, the human element. Uh, your corporate network, there's, there's ways that people could access information there. So once you've answered these three questions, what do you want to protect, which is your assets? Who do you want to defend against, which are your adversaries? And where will you be attacked, which is your attack services? Now you have clarity on where you should invest time, effort, and money. Now, if you're, I don't know exactly who all might be listening to the show, but let's say you, your business as an entrepreneur is you run a blog that is just recipes and your business model is to sell ads on it. Um, you probably don't have as much of a concern of that getting attacked other than if you know an attacker were to take it offline and now your revenue stream stops until it comes back online. Mm-hmm. But maybe you're building something for a financial services client. Well, now, okay, your attack scenario is very, very different because you're protecting money, you're protecting, people want access to that kind of stuff. And by having done this exercise, you're able to step back and to say, okay, I've got some things I need to protect or don't. Uh, I have attackers that are of varying degrees of capability and here's all the different places I can get attacked. And now you can think about, well, what am I going to do about it? And that's, I think that's really the question that everyone's trying to answer. Like, what do I do about this? And by answering these first three questions, it helps you answer that fourth question, which is now what do I do about it? Hey there, it's Mark. And I just want to hop in here real quick to invite you to follow me on both Facebook and Instagram. I'm really easy to find there. Just go to the search and type in Mr. Productivity. Two words, Mr. Productivity on Facebook and on Instagram. I love that. And as you're talking there, a thought that pops into my head is I see a lot of people on social media. They'll say, well, you know, I'm not rich. I'm not famous. I don't have to worry. And my thought is, what makes you think that the hackers are going after just the wealthy and the rich people? I mean, certainly they are, but I don't think they're going to go, oh, Ted's not famous. Well, I'm not going to go after him. I, I don't think the hackers think that way, do they? You're 100% right. I hear, I hear that all the time. I'm too small. I'm a small business. I'm, there's just three of us. Why would anybody want to attack us? And th- this is what you've just uh, pushed on here is one of the nuances that is so commonly overlooked, which is that the uh, oftentimes victims don't actually realize why they're being victimized. So a perfect example, there's a story that happened uh, maybe a couple years ago where there's these um, very inexpensive surveillance cameras that are designed and sold for your like mom and pop type uh, like convenience stores, you know, not, not like re- major retail, you're talking about local operations. And so the person who buys that, they don't care necessarily about the tech of this thing. They just want to make sure what happens if someone breaks in and steals, you know, from the register or whatever. And the person, the company who makes that device, they don't really care because to them, these are low cost, almost disposable uh, items. And so sort of both sides of the scenario are like, eh. well, what happened was the, there's an attacker group who was able to uh, compromise, not just one, not just like, mark's candy store and ted's like shoe emporium or whatever but they compromised like hundreds of thousands of them wow. because the the security in them was very very poor and once they took all of these what they're able to do was now 
take the computational power, which and each individual one isn't very much, but when there's hundreds of thousands of them, it's a pretty significant amount of computational power. Took it all and directed all this traffic at this company that no one had ever heard of before this attack happened that is essentially the backbone of the internet. And as a result, it it flooded this system. And so the internet became unusable for hours on uh, certain stretches of the East Coast. And so there's a great example of where someone's like, I'm too small, why would someone care? And as a result, it impacted you know, millions of people. And that's the way that we need to really be thinking about it is that, hey, we're not all these sort of faceless you know, unseen victims or whatever attackers, they're looking for the easy, they're not, not all attackers are doing this, but many attackers are looking for the easy victims. And who are the easiest victims? The ones who are like, what do I have? You know, those are the ones who get compromised first. Wow. And of course, I think it was December, 2020, the whole ring camera thing where there's a real famous YouTube video where this little little girls up in a room and someone hacked in the ring camera and says, don't you know me? I'm Santa Claus. And that scared a lot of people. I think it was a ring camera. Maybe it was another monitor, but you, I'm sure you know that story. And people are like, wait, how do they do it? Because people just assumed that their camera, well, of course they're secure. Well, how do you know? And I, I, we touched on a lot of things today. And I really love those three questions. Let me give those three questions again to the listener. If you're out running or walking or whatever the case may be. First of all is, what do you want to protect? Those are your assets. Number two, who do you want to defend against? And number three, where will you be attacked? And I'm so glad you brought up your book because a lot of people are going, okay, those are great questions, Mark and Ted, but I don't know what to do with it. So tell us about your book and tell us where, where we can get your book. Sure. Yeah. The book's called Hackable, How to Do Application Security Right. And uh, I wrote this book because in you know my, my profession is I have a, uh, I'm in the fortunate position to be a leader of what's called ethical hackers. And so uh, basically what we do is uh, companies come to us when they are building systems and they want to know, well, how, how could someone attack this and what should we do to make it better? And so through the many years I've been doing that, I have, you know, obviously accumulated a accumulated a lot of experiences working with these companies and seeing the way companies get it right and the way that you know many companies actually get it wrong and i realized that i wanted to put that in a book so that i could make those insights and those lessons much more widely available than just however many people i can speak to in a given day week or year and so even though the book is written for people who are building and responsible for software systems i wrote it in a way intentionally excuse me, to make it simple so that even the, like that person who does have the mom and pop store, that they can understand it because the ideas in it, I think are, um, that many of the principles are really universal. And so it's available on Amazon or wherever, but probably the simplest thing is if you just go to tedharrington.com, you can see everything you need to know about the book, where to follow me on social media. You can figure out how to contact me. If you're building something and you want advice on how to secure it, it's all right there at tedharrington.com. Excellent. Well, you answered my final question. I really appreciate that because you're, you're a podcaster like I am. Ted, thank you so much for being on the show today. I know I learned a lot. You also uh, help you know, make sure that what I was saying was correct. I really appreciate that. So thank you for coming on the show today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. 
Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your time and attention for listening to this episode of the Mark Stucheski podcast. Hey, are you a Mark Stucheski insider yet? This is my free email newsletter where I will send you value multiple times a week. And I promise you, every time I send an email out to my insiders, it always has value. So if you want to sign up, absolutely free. Just head on over to mrproductivity.com, M-I-S-T-E-R, mrproductivity.com.